everybody. I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor here at Crosspoint, and I'm just so pumped you guys are here this morning. Uh, well, it was the end of a really long work day, and, um, you know, I had my whole routine. And maybe you guys do the same thing, where, like, you know, I'm getting ready to go home, and so I'd, like, you know, keys, uh, phone, wallet, and then I'd always grab my iPad that I'd keep on the corner of my desk, slip it on my bag, and then, like, head to, uh, head to my car. Uh, well, on this day in particular, as I'm going to reach for my iPad, it's just not there. But, like, that's okay, because, like, I had a vague memory of, like, using it in a staff meeting earlier that morning. So, you know, I ran downstairs to our lead pastor's office. I go in, and I look around, and sure enough, there is, like, there's no iPad. But, you know, good news, you know, Apple is way ahead of me on this one. And so, uh, if you might not know this, but every one of your smart devices is, like, constantly communicating GPS coordinates to the cloud. So, um, I was like, all right, great news. I'll just tap into the wiretap, and we'll find out where it is. So, I go on to find my iPhone, and uh, I see that my iPad, like, is there on the map. And at first, uh, you know, it's, like, it's like relieved all my fears. Like, okay, good, it's showing up. Because um, now what I can do is just go to that part of the building, um, you know, and probably find it, like, sitting on a table. And if it's not there, it's probably under a table or under a chair, and all I have to do is hit the play a sound feature on the app, and it would start dinging at me until, until I pick it up. Um, and I'm like, great news. So it's there on the map, and then fear strikes, because it's not inside the building. It's like half a mile down the street at a Starbucks that I sometimes stop for, for coffee. And I'm like, I definitely didn't go to Starbucks this morning. Like, what, what happened here? So, like, suddenly, like, justice mixed with, like, fight or flight, like, kicks into my body. And so I, like, grab all my stuff, and I'm racing to my car. And, like, I can picture what is happening at this exact moment. Like, there is some dude, or late, I mean, it's 2019, like, multiple people can steal, like, devices. Like, I'm not going to judge. Um, so, like, this person is, like, taking my iPad off my desk and is now down at the Starbucks. They're probably drinking some caramel macchiato like a total jerk, reading Lord of the Rings on my Kindle app, but little do they know, justice is now climbing into the driver's seat of his 2012 Ford Fiesta. That sounded a lot more intimidating in my head. Okay, so I'm like racing down there, and like here's what I'm assuming is gonna happen. I'm gonna bust open like the door, and I'm gonna see this person on my iPad, and I'm gonna be able to like immediately confront them and take it back, because you know, as you can obviously see, I get into fights all the time, so I'm like, I know I'm good. Um, so I like bust in, and like I've got like that nervous energy, you know, where like, you know, like immediately I sit down, and a couple things strike me immediately. Nobody is on a device, which is already weird, right? Like, this is the 2010s. Like, somebody should be on a phone at this point. But nobody's on a device. The other thing is there's a lot of people in the room. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm, like, scanning the crowd. Like, you know, I've picked out a few people that I'm pretty sure did it, but, like, you know, I can't, like, just go up to them and ask them about it. And so as I'm noticing that nobody's looking familiar, I don't see anybody with my iPad, I, I realize what I have to do, i got to pull out that play a sound feature. So I pull out the app and I start hitting the play of sound, assuming somebody's going to jump and I'm going to have my man. Like, that's, that's all it's going to take. Um, so I do it. Nobody flinches. So I'm like, well, maybe it's just too loud in here. So I start doing, like, the walk around the room. And I'm going, like, table to table. I'm dropping my head down to see if maybe it's, like, in a bag. I'm scanning people. And I know I'm looked at like a weirdo at this point, but I don't care. I'm on a mission. And so eventually, like, I get to the point where... I just, I need to call him the big guns. So I, I get on the phone and I call my buddy Hugo. And here's the thing about Hugo is he's 6'3", like 285, very intimidating. And I call him to the Starbucks because now I'm going to have like both of us walking around. So we're now both doing laps around the Starbucks. I'm playing the sound. Nobody's moving. We can't seem to find it. And we finally like reconvene. And I'm like, Hugo, what do you think is going on here? He's like, it just might be too loud. I'm like, you're right. So I walk up to the barista. And I tell her my story, and she seems very sympathetic to this. 
And like, so she's like, I, I'll turn down the music for you. And so she gets up and she starts walking to the back. And sure enough, on the app, as soon as she leaves my eyesight, it looks like my iPad has now jumped to the parking lot behind the building. And I'm like, no, not the barista. Like anybody but the barista. Like I'm gonna have to pick a whole new place to buy coffee. Like this is, this is awful. And then like the second thought is like, a Chick-fil-A employee would never do this, right? Like that would never happen at a Chick-fil-A. But I'm thinking, like, this poor sweet barista has stolen my iPad. So Hugo and I, like, we bust out the side door. We run around back, and nobody is in the parking lot behind the Starbucks. And we're, at this point, just flabbergasted, like, what is happening? So we, we start walking back around to the front of the building, just feeling defeated, like this is never going to happen. And then we see it, like a big, bright, sheeming uh, glimmer of hope. A GameStop is right next door to the Starbucks with a large banner that says, we buy your old electronics with a picture of an iPad. So I walk into the GameStop, and the guy behind the counter says, hey, did somebody steal your iPad? And I go, oh my gosh, how did you know? You must be a prophet. And he goes, no, 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 this thing's been going crazy for the last 45 minutes. It's just constant dinging. And so we figured that you were close by, and so we switched it to our Wi-Fi just so you would have a stronger signal. I'm like, oh, well, this makes, this makes sense. So it took us about two minutes to figure out who did it because the person who sold my stolen iPad had to use an ID. You know, brilliant. So, um, like, I immediately figured it out, and it was this kid from my growth group who had stopped by my office earlier in the day and had grabbed my iPad off my desk and taken it down to GameStop and sold it. And so because it's now considered stolen property, I, I can't just take it back. We had to call the police. Um, we had to fill out a report and everything. And uh, at this point, I've been looking for it for about two and a half hours. And um, I had this moment where I'm like, I'm going to go talk to him right now. Like, I'm going to go ask him about this. Like, I'm going I'm to get to the bottom of, like, why, why did he even take it? And so I had this thing as I was driving over there um, to his house of if, if he will, if he will admit to taking it without me, like, showing him proof that, that I know he did it. Like, if, if he'll own it ahead of time, I'm going to drop the charges. Like, this is, like, in my mind, like, this is, this is like, a reasonable response. I felt like it, it was just, like, the right thing to do in the moment. So I go over to his house, and um, I'm like, hey, do you, do you mind if we talk for a minute? And so we go out back, and um, I go, the craziest thing happened today. I, I think my iPad was stolen. And this is a reaction. What? <laughs> I'm like... Bite your lip, Matt. Okay. So I'm like, did, did you take it? No lie, this is the response. Offended, angry, shocked that I even accused him. He goes, me? No, absolutely not. At this point, like, I just dropped the act. I'm like, I know you did it. You took my iPad. You know, like, I'm just, I, I didn't lay into him, but, like, I, I definitely let him know, like, I have proof. Like, you are ID'd. Like, you're on video. You used your ID. I, I know you took it. But suddenly, I was at a crossroads. And it's all surrounded by this, this $5 word that, that we all kind of know what it means, but we don't necessarily use it in our vocabulary all the time. And the word is condemnation. Like, I was in the right. Like, unassumingly, my iPad is stolen. I have the proof when I've given him an opportunity to admit it and confess it. He denies it. And I was in the right. And see, what happens is whenever we talk about the word condemnation, there's two seats to it. The first seat is the seat of justice. And it's the person who can look down at the other person on the other side. Like, knowing that they were right, 
like judging the other person. On the other side of the same lever, the same side of the seesaw, you have the seat of judgment, which comes with guilt and shame. And knowing what you did was, was wrong. And what happens is whenever you're in this seat, you feel the weight of past mistakes. You feel the stress of knowing that you were wrong. You feel the anxiety of being judged and condemned by the person in the other seat. This person wants nothing more than to get off the seat. This person wants nothing more than to hold on to their position. Everything was centered around this, this $5 word of condemnation. What was I going to do with this guy who had taken my iPad? I've caught him red-handed. The choice is mine. So today we are uh, continuing on in our, our series, Jesus' Hope for Humanity, where we've been kind of slowly walking through the book of John. John was Jesus' best friend. John walked with Jesus. He was there. He witnessed the stories and these moments. And today we have a very, very interesting story that really centers around the seesaw of judgment and guilt and shame. So if you brought a Bible, you can open up to the middle, start turning to the right. Eventually you're going to get to the New Testament, and it's going to be in this book called John. If you're on a phone, you can start scrolling down to get to the bottom third of books. Um, it's the fourth one in the New Testament. Or, of course, we're always going to have it on the screen behind me as well, just so you can, uh, you can follow along. But John 8, starting in verse 1, says this. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down, and he taught them. Okay, quick time out. See, at this point in Jesus' story, like, he is at the full height of his popularity. Like, everywhere he goes, like, huge crowds start to assemble. Like, people know him. People like him. They want to hear what he has to say. And this is no, this is, a, this is just like every other day for Jesus. He goes to the temple, and immediately the crowd starts to form. And it says in verse 3, As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, I'm trying to wrap my head around like what it must have actually been like for Jesus in this moment. Because, you know, I, I've taught a lot, but I've never had like somebody like run somebody up to the front of the room for me to like, you know, decide on like whether this person was in, you know, the wrong or not. Um, and so I'm guessing like this has got to be pretty weird. And like also because of the motivations of the Pharisees, which we'll get to in a second, um, there's a really good chance that she also looks like she was caught in the act of adultery, you know, if, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and so in verse 5, this is, what, this is what they say. They say, the law of Moses says to stone her. But what do you say? Let that sink in for a second. Because technically, they're right. Technically, the Old Testament law, who was written by this guy named Moses, would say that this woman, she should be stoned for her mistake. That she should be dragged out and they should toss rocks on her until, until she dies. And that's the thing that's so hard about the seesaw of condemnation. Is that more often than not, the people who sit on this side, they're usually technically right. And see, here's something I've learned. Is that it, condemnation hurts a lot worse when the person who is condemning you is technically right. Like we all experience this, or at least I experience this. You go into junior high school with like a huge zit on your face. Like that's already embarrassing, right? But it didn't start to hurt until somebody condemned you for it, right? Everybody with me? And some of you are like, I don't get, relate to that. Well, count yourselves lucky, okay? The rest of us, the rest of us, we felt that weight when that happened. No, it hurts when, when they're technically right. Or maybe 
Maybe you made some mistakes when you were 15 years old. And your family is still holding that over you. And technically, they're correct. And that's one of the hard things about condemnation. Is that usually the person who sits in that seat of judgment is, like, technically correct. And I think it's just really important for us, though, to just take a quick time out. And kind of examine, like, who the characters in our story is today. Because, like... The, out of the gate, the first group that you've got is this crowd who just like showed up. And I don't know like uh, the full makeup of the group, but you know, I have to think that maybe a handful of guys were there because their wife like dragged them to temple on, a, on like a Saturday. And they're like, hey, let's, we have to go to temple. It's what we do. And he's like, all right. And man, talk about like a lucky day to show up, right? You know, because you get there and hey, here's Jesus. That's already interesting. Sometimes he does miracles. Then all of a sudden you've got like this, you know, this lady that's uh, dragged before you who's just caught in the act of adultery. There's, there's mystery. There's intrigue. Like... If you're part of the crowd that day, like, this was a good day to show up, if you know what I mean. Um, the second group of people that we have in the story is the Pharisees. And, like, here's the deal about the Pharisees. They're sitting on this side of the seesaw, looking down at this woman. And their whole theory on, on, on Jesus was that all of his appeal was nothing but a house of cards. See, here, here is their belief. That Jesus would like play the God card. Like he would like lay down, like here's what the Old Testament says and here's what, here's what God is trying to do. Uh, but, but clearly, clearly Jesus like wasn't truly committed to God in their eyes. This is what they're thinking. And the reason why they believe this is because anytime somebody with a questionable reputation, somebody who should be sitting on this side of the seesaw is like brought before him, he doesn't seem to condemn them. He seems to accept them and like treat them like they're an actual person. And he doesn't judge them. He, he treats them with like dignity and value and respect. And their theory was that if we force him to get on the seesaw, he's going to, if he's truly all about God, he's going to have to sit right here. And when he sits right here, he's going to have to look down at this woman because technically we are correct. We have caught her red-handed. You cannot let her off the hook. The Old Testament law, the rabbinical traditions, everything that we base this on says that she should be stoned. And what will happen is Jesus will be forced to sit right here on the seesaw of condemnation, looking down at this woman, and he's going to lose all of his populist appeal. The people are going to see right through him. Or... Also a win for the Pharisees. He's going to let her off the hook. And in the process of letting her off the hook, he's going to completely disregard the Bible. And this whole reputation he has as a rabbi and as somebody who is close to God will be completely wiped away. And what will happen is Jesus will then be forced to sit on that side of the seesaw with the Pharisees on this end, looking down at him condemningly. Now, the third character in the story is the woman. And let's not forget about her. I mean, there's a chance, there's a chance that she was a prostitute. And these Pharisees, they knew what they were getting when they were trying to trap Jesus. Like, there's, there's a chance of that. I mean, there's also a chance that this woman was unsuspecting. And one member of that group seduced her. And they used her as a pawn in their whole scheme just so they could probably try and trap Jesus. And let me just point out for a second that, you know, it takes two to tango in this situation, and the dude is not there, okay? Like, only the woman has been brought before Jesus in this moment. And I, I hate to point out the obvious, but, you know, every study, every sociological study that you will ever read, like, kind of points out this, this big truth, that sex is a very big deal, and it's specifically with, in, in regards to your emotions, 
Like it is, it is like fire. It will either warm your house or it will burn it down. And so to imagine for a second what it must have been like for this woman to have something so intimate, to have something that is so powerful, something that, that has so much sway over her life, just wielded so recklessly, just so, just so they could trap Jesus in his words. I mean, that is, a, that is appalling. And unfortunately for her, apparently she messed up. She made a mistake. She did the wrong thing when she could have done the right thing. But unlike for a lot of us, her mistake is now completely public for everybody else to see. Her entire life is now wrecked. She's sitting down here. Did she mess up? Yes. Has anything that they've said thus far been untrue? No. And she's feeling the weight and the shame and the guilt of condemnation from this side of the seesaw. And then the last character to look at today is Jesus. What is Jesus going to do? So in verse 6 of 8, John chapter 8 says, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he started writing in the dust. Now, we don't, know what he, we don't know what he wrote. I mean, some people, they speculate. Some people think that he was writing out the sins of the guys who were watching on. Some people believe that he might have been writing out some of the, some verses from the Old Testament that would, that would kind of put this into perspective. But honestly, we just, we just don't know what he was doing. But apparently, he was down long enough that it started to get awkward. The silence is starting to get a little deafening. The crowd is watching on. The Pharisees are demanding an answer. This woman is just sitting there, and Jesus is just silent. It actually says in the next verse that they start to demand an answer. And so as Jesus is just kind of riding there in the dust, he looks up. He says, all right. But the person who's never stoned, or the person who has never, who has never sinned, you can, cast, you can cast the first stone. And he gets back down and he starts writing in the dust a little bit longer. Apparently, whatever they were trying to get him to do, Jesus was not taking the bait. I mean, they're wanting him to just declare one way or another. And he's just not doing it. And that silence, that pause, that, that awkwardness of, like, you got to pick a side, Jesus. Like, you going to let her off the hook, or are you going to sit on your seat of condemnation and, and judge her? And his response was, okay, if you've never sinned, you can throw the first stone. Now, the obvious thing to this is that we believe that Jesus led a perfect and sinless life, and that would secure his seat on this side, where he would be the only one who could ever, like, cast the stone. Uh, but as I did a little bit more study, here's something I actually kind of learned about this, is that within the Old Testament as well as the rabbinical traditions, um, the idea was that whenever you were going to punish somebody for a sin, whenever you were going to hold somebody accountable for, for something, and specifically when it came to stoning them, you had to also be free of guilt in that particular area. So let that sink in for a second. What Jesus is also saying is if you've also never committed adultery, you can cast the first stone. And this is really big because in that day and age, there was a huge double standard that was happening. Where 
the people who had studied the Old Testament law, they had found all these different ways to work around their sexual indiscretions. They could, they could divorce a person because, just because like, she looked at him wrong, the wrong way. And like, they would hold her to a standard that they wouldn't hold them to. Um, they, could, they could hide their sin and their indiscretions. But this woman could not. And so whether they were just feeling the weight of that moment or whether they were just kind of feeling caught in their scheme or whether they had also sinned themselves in this particular area, it says in verse 9 that when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. And at the end of all this, a life is wrecked, a group of prideful men are now embarrassed, and now Jesus is stuck, like left trying to pick up the pieces. It says in verse 10 that then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, when you look at a story like this, I, I feel like one of like, the obvious questions that we should just ask ourselves is, is Jesus letting her off the hook? Like, is he pretending like this was no big deal? Like, hey, you know, just, just you know... Let's, let's wipe, you know, just, just do better next time. And, uh, you know, or, or maybe like, hey, don't worry about it. We've all been there. Like, is that what's happening in this moment? No, when you actually go back and see what he actually said to her in that moment, he doesn't let her off the hook. He acknowledges, like, you, you made a mistake. He says, I, I'm not condemning you, but go and, and sin no more. And one of the big reasons why I believe that this was the right response and the only way that Jesus could respond is a few chapters earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus is having this conversation with this religious leader. And this is what he says about his mission coming to earth. He says this in John three seventeen. He says, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And other translations will say, God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Now, does this mean that it doesn't matter what we do, that like there's no more right or wrong? No, that's not what this is saying. In fact, one thing that we believe very strongly is that every single person has what's built up, a, a, a debt of sin, okay? And sin, it separates us. Our debt of sin has kept us from a perfect and a right relationship with God. In fact, I, I look at it a lot like this, though. Um, because keep in mind, like this is something that is a universal truth. That is, it is ubiquitous. Every single person, all sin. And all fall short of the glory of God, okay? So, like, that's, like this, is, this is standard that we all need to understand. But here's the problem. Is that every single one of us, we all struggle with sin. We all struggle with making the right decision when we really just want to make the wrong one. Um, and some of us have gotten really good about hiding it. Like, it manifests itself in ways that maybe we can keep from other people. And I look at it a lot like this. Some of you treat your sin the way that I treat weeds when they get into my lawn. And so here's what I do. Whenever I see weeds springing up, I grab my mower and I just mow them over, okay? And here's what's really cool about this. Is that when you cut, like most weeds, when you, when you cut them with the mower, it blends right in with the grass. And nobody knows that I have a weed problem in my, in my yard. And nobody, and so that's, that's what I do. I just mow it. Some of you... Some of you hide your weed problem, not that kind of weed, but the other kind of weeds. Like, um, you, hide, you hide your weeds problem in your backyard. You just put a fence up around it. And like it's there, but you have to be invited back in order to see it. Like nobody knows who lives on your block unless you are allowed 
in your backyard. But others of you, unfortunately, your sin is on full display. Like, it's, it's springing up in the front yard. It's hanging out in the, in the, in the flower beds. It's, it's happening all over the place. And you just can't seem to hide it. It's on full display. Now, keep in mind, everybody is having weeds spring up in their yard. But some of you have just gotten a lot better about hiding it. And God, in his position, as like the perfect and just ruler of the universe, he can sit right here while the rest of us hang out all the way down here in our sin and our guilt and our shame, never able to actually get out of the seat. Like it's too heavy. It's too weighty. There's no possible way that you can spring yourself up from your spot. And, and God could just hang out right here and judge you. But I have really good news for us. A little bit later, another writer in the New Testament, a guy named Paul, he would sit down one day and he would pen a letter to the church in Rome. And he would say this in Romans 8, verse 1. He says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. See, God is not in the business of trying to remind you of your sin. He is trying to free you from your sin. Like, let that sink in for a second. Because some of you, for years and years and years, have carried, like, the weight and the burden of your guilt and your shame. And you just feel like everybody's looking down at you, that God is sitting in his seat and he is, he is condemning you. And you feel like other people are sitting in their seat and they are just condemning you. But Romans 8, chapter 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has taken the seesaw and he has just completely destroyed it. And he said, we are now off of this. Like, this should be really good news for every single one of us. He doesn't want to remind you of your sin. He wants to free you from it. And some of you have tasted that and you have felt the, that relief of relieving that burden. But there's a dark side to this as well. Because you, know you know who really seems to enjoy reminding people of their sins? A lot of times it's Christians. See, what we do is we say, oh, God, you're not condemning people? Hey, don't worry, I got you. And we pick up the seesaw and we say, all right, let, let me fix that for you. And what we do is we, we put the seesaw back in place. And the reason why we do it, it, it kind of makes sense, right? Like God has given us like this perfect moral authority from on high. And what we do is we take that information and we say, okay, well, let's assume our spots back again. And let's just make sure that people kind of know where they rank in these things. There's this principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that I just I hope it sinks in for us. And the principle is this, that, that we as followers of Jesus, we are to lovingly encourage other followers of Jesus who are part of our church to walk away from their sin. So when somebody hurts somebody, we are to lovingly encourage them and help guide them to making the right choice. And to make sure we don't miss it, it then goes explicitly to say... That we are not to judge those people who are not part of our movement, that are not part of our church, that are not part of our gathering, that are they're not part of us. That we shouldn't try and take the seat of condemnation back from God and say, well, let's hold everybody else to this. You know why? Because it creates hypocrisy. Because what we do is we end up flipping this principle. We say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give people that are my friends and people who are part of our church, I'm going to give them a pass, but I'm going to hold other people accountable for their mistakes. 
My goodness. All right, I hope I framed this right. Because um, if this comes out the wrong way, then I feel like it's going to completely sidetrack and derail um, everything I really think that, that we need to kind of focus on this morning. Um, but I kind of want to go in a direction that, um, that, that kind of exposes this a little bit deeper. This is not my opinion. This is like Jesus' words from Matthew 5. Um, I didn't put it on the screen because I just want you to like listen to it and hear it. Because I, I want to make sure that I want to make sure that, that we're consistent in this, okay? This is, these are Jesus' words, not my opinion. It says in Matthew 5.32, But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You know what? I know that this is a standard that God sets, but I also know that God loves divorced people. Okay? Like, this is one that I, I feel like the church at large is, has kind of said, yeah, yeah, we, we get this. Like, there is no sin that is too great that, like, their story can't be redeemed. Like, I, I know God loves people. I love divorced people. That, that is a standard, though, that, that he sets. And if it wasn't, he wouldn't have set it. But I don't withhold somebody's dignity or value or love for them because of, because of divorce. Now, here's why this is important. Um, this is from the Barna Group. Uh, did you know that according to recent studies, this is not anecdotal, this is like hard evidence, Christians are more likely to disapprove of homosexuality than divorce. And I know that there's like different, like, you know, gymnastics you might be doing, but hey, God has set a standard, okay? And anything short of that standard isn't right. But Christians, for some reason, were like, I, yeah, I'm way more cool with divorced people than I am with homosexuals. Did you know that two out of five Christians admitted they have more sympathy for people who have cancer than they do for people with HIV or AIDS? Some people even say it's deserved, saying like, oh, well, it's just God punishing them. Now, the reason I say this is I really think this should, I think this should embarrass us. Like, I, I think that this type of attitude is completely, completely antagonistic towards God's plan of like, I don't, I don't want you to feel that, that condemnation. Like, why are we more likely to condemn one group over another? Now, before you think I'm compromising on anything, I, I just want to go on record. I want you to hear me on this. I really do believe that God's standard for sexuality is as follows, is that it, it should be between one man, one woman, over the course of one lifetime, and anything short of that, it fails to meet that standard. And it's an incredibly high bar. But there is no sin that is so great that God can't redeem it. There is no story that is so great that God's like, I'm going to hold this one over you. Or we should hold this one over you. I love divorced people. I also love gay people. And I believe God does too. So if you're wondering, like, are people who identify as homosexual, are they loved and are they welcome to attend our church? Yes. Our divorced people, are they loved and welcome to attend our church? Yes. Our people who skip marriage altogether, are they loved and welcome to attend our church? Yes. Our liars, 
loved and welcome to attend our church? Yes. Are lazy people loved and welcome to attend our church? Yes. And are the self-righteous, those who mow our yards to where nobody can tell what's happening or hide it behind a fence, unless somebody's allowed and nobody would ever know, are they loved and they welcome to attend the church? Yes. Is this messy? Absolutely. Like, there's a lot of times I just don't know how like, to put it all together. Do we shy away from a very high and hard standard that God sets for us? No. We don't say that it's just like anything goes. Like, that's not what even Jesus said to that woman on that day. He says, does nobody condemn you? I don't either. Go and sin no more. So I ended up not dropping the charges on that young man who stole my iPad. I honestly don't know if that was the right choice or not. I, I don't know if, um, if I made a mistake. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get anything from that. There was no restitution. I got my iPad back. Um, like, he didn't have to do anything uh, for me based on going you know, before a judge. But you know who drove him to the courtroom that day? I did. That night, as I confronted him about, about stealing um, something and violating my trust, I was like, you don't even have to lie to me. I know that you did it. Tomorrow, let's go out for breakfast. So we went out for breakfast. We talked about it. He apologized. He admitted what he did. I drove him to the courthouse that day. I sat in the room as the judge rendered her verdict. And I took him out for lunch right afterward. Like I said, I, I don't know if that was the right thing. I don't know if that violates anything like 1 Corinthians 6. or. But I know that on that day, and with that situation, with that person, said, you know, I guess I'm still going to hold you to the standard. But as far as like, am I going to lord this over you? Am I going to sit on this seat and judge you from now until the end of our friendship for what you did? No. There's been a lot of times I haven't reacted that same way. There's probably still people that, that I hold on to their mistakes and their sin and their shame and I unintentionally get on my seesaw and hold it over them. But that's not right. See, our model, it's not me, it's not you, it's Jesus. And when he was in this situation, here's what he did. When everybody else was ready to murder this woman, the rock of ages stood up to the men with the stones in their hands and said, I'm not going to condemn her. Go and sin no more. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we got to get off our seat. We have to love people and treat them the way that Jesus loves and treats them. When somebody says, I'm willing to commit and I'm ready to 
to join the movement and be part of the church. We can lovingly encourage the work of the Holy Spirit and through God's word to meet those high and hard standards. But for somebody who's just coming in and sitting down, we're not going to have a litmus test at the door. We're not going to rate whether we're going to love somebody based on a lifestyle or a political belief or a past that, that we all would have if given the right circumstances. For those of us in the room who say, you know, I, I never would have considered myself a follower of Jesus. I want you to know that any kind of condemnation or any kind of judgment or guilt that you feel in this moment, God is saying, I, I don't want you to feel that. In fact, I would love for you to hand that over to me. And when you do that, I take up the lever of condemnation and I toss it down. God is wanting to invite you into a relationship with him. So if you would, just join me in prayer. God, I pray for our church. I pray that, that the self-righteousness that we feel over areas that some people sin in and other people don't, that God, that you would strip that away from our hearts, that we would love people the way that you love them, that we would treat them with dignity and value and worth, that the God, that people would be uh, almost turned off by how much we love them, that they, that they, God, would just feel so incredibly valued by us. God, I pray for those in this room who aren't followers of Jesus, but God, they hear this and you're already talking to them. And you're telling them to walk from death into life. And God, I pray that you would put this prayer on their heart and on their lips. That God, I'm in desperate need of a Savior. That God, I'm asking you to forgive me my sins and take full control of my life. God, we trust that your ways are better than our ways. And so I hand them over to you, believing that you're going to do what I would think is impossible supernatural power and grace. Praise your son Jesus' name.